Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. We're starting a new series. I'm really excited uh, about this new year. And as I spoke last week, if you're here, I love New Year's. I love vision. I love like planning. I love thinking about uh, challenges and where to put my energy and all those things. And as I've been thinking about this, it's it's been really fun over the last probably month or two, I've gotten to be with people who um, are kind of outside of our church or outside of our city or state, and um, they really want to know like kind of what's been going on in our church, and it's been really fun to tell the story about what God has been doing here and how we've seen his hand on our community. I love that verse in Acts 4 where it says, God, stretch out your hand to do powerful things amongst us. Like we've really seen God's hand on this church. And um, as we talk about this church family, one of the things that most consistently comes up is the culture that's been created here. And you've probably heard the statement, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So there's one thing to try to be something. There's another thing to be something. You have a culture and it becomes part of who you are. And our statement, as Chase mentioned this morning, is that we're a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. What I love about that is that for us isn't just aspirational or strategic. It's actually who we are. It's what you experience when you come in here. People go like, wow, I can't believe the kids at this church and that they're everywhere and that they're in the midst and that it's just okay. Right? Like it's okay just to have a little more noise and a little bit more activity because we value the generational aspect of the church. We want to see everyone knowing and loving and serving each other from zero to 105, right? We don't, we don't care the age range. We want everyone together. And it's been a part of who we are. And so one, I just want to say thank you for helping us create that culture, for embodying that culture. Now, the interesting thing about culture is once you create culture, then you're, you're tasked with uh, cultivating it and protecting it, right? Like, like to actually steward what God has done and who you've become, and you start to realize you have to continue to express the culture and talk about the culture and embody the culture in ways that just get deep into you where it's like habit. So I've talked about sports before. So one of the biggest things I learned in sports was muscle memory, right? Your, your muscles literally, like your body has a stored memory of things you do all the time. And so we'd always say in the game, if you're thinking about it, you're late, right? So if you're thinking, I need to do that, it's done. The play's over. Your body has to recognize and respond through memory. So in practice, we would like run a play and we'd walk through it without a ball, and we'd walk and our coach would yell at us if we jogged. He's like, no, I said walk, 
So we'd walk through the play and we'd do it 10 times. And then we'd jog through the play and we'd do it 10 times. And then we'd run through the play and do it 10 times. So you'd have, have moved in those spaces in your role and your position doing what you're supposed to do 30 times before you actually did it with a ball. And then you do it 10 times with a ball and you get used to it. And then you add and you go back and you do it with a defense and you walk again with the ball and you do it slow and you've got a defender. So you start to know what, what does it look like to run this player when there's a person in front of me? I've got to move a little different. And then you get to the point where you're running that play full speed and then you get into a game and when he calls number one, your body responds and you go to the spot that you're supposed to be in and you just run the play. It's amazing how God's wired us. Well, it's the same thing like with culture. Your, your life has a memory of the things you do and the ways you respond and how you act. And so we want to cultivate this life together. And one of the ways we do that is, is uh, on Sundays, we want to highlight these uh, values of being a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, a generational community. Um, and so in, in this sermon series, we really want to highlight our disciple-making efforts. And what does it look like to be a disciple-making church? And what is kind of what I would call like the secret sauce of Skyline in terms of how we make disciples and what it looks like? Because our philosophy is actually a little bit different uh, than most. So this morning, you know, I could go through kind of like the modern history of discipleship and what it looks like, and I could probably pick it apart and show why it's lacking or it's not working anymore, and um, you'd be bored, and I don't have enough time to do that. Um, Lance and I geek out on that stuff when we hang out together. But uh, rather, what, like, what I want to do is present like a vision of discipleship that we have at the core of Skyline and give you this positive vision and the why behind it, and then we'll take the next probably eight or nine weeks to unpack this idea because it's new enough that it takes a while for it to work its way into you. But here, here's what I, I do want to say is like in seasons of like upheaval and change in societies and cultures, it's, it's, they're scary moments, they're hard moments, they're confusing moments, and yet almost every time there is cultural change and upheaval and difficulty, God is at work under the surface. And he's bringing opportunity for revival and for change and for powerful acts of his, his, like his power being poured out. And it always requires new wine and new skins. It, it always ends up basically being like what you were doing before no longer works and you have to go back to the source and ask him, okay, what does this look like for this generation? In the book of Acts, it says David served the purpose of God in his generation and then he went to sleep. David had to tap into God, not what were you doing when Moses was here or when Joshua was leading or somebody else. God, what are you doing now in me, through me, for the world? I want to be faithful to your purpose for this generation. I don't want to miss it by trying to recreate something you did before. Um, and so what's interesting about new wine and new skins, it sounds scary, but it's almost always old wine. It's, it's almost always, it's like going back to the source and doing the very beginnings of things that they're new to us because they got lost somewhere over time. So the Old Testament, you see almost every time in the book of Judges, it says there grew up a generation who no longer knew the Lord nor obeyed his commands. Somewhere along the way, they lost, they drifted, they rejected, they rebelled, and they had to rediscover the truth of who God is and what he wants to do on the earth. And so that's what we want to see. Our philosophy of discipleship in these days has radically changed because I think as I've been in ministry 25 years, we've watched 
the church change. We watch culture change. America, our country has changed, right? And so we can either wring our hands and bury our heads about the change, or we can sober up, look around, and ask God, how do you want to win this generation? Like, how do you want to win these people right now? Not how do we recover the past? What do you want to do that's fresh and new and powerful in the present? And so as we were doing this, our friend Corey Russell, if you remember him, uh, he recommended to me a book that he says, listen, the journey you guys are on as a church, you need to read this book. It'll radically change the way you see discipleship and your efforts. And I was like, game. So I read it, and it's a book called Discipleship Begins with Beholding. Discipleship begins with a beholding. I'd highly recommend you get that book and read it. You'll hear a lot of the themes of that book in our sermons in the next eight or nine weeks because we're just plucking from this, um, from this book. Um, but in the coming weeks, I, I want to take the premise of this book and, and share with you in many ways what you already know, but you don't know why. You, you will hear these things that I talk about this morning. You'll say, I, I've recognized that now. Now I know why you do that. Now I know why we do this. Now I, I get what you meant when you said this um, because we want to flesh it out and some of these things we've already integrated and it'll connect some dots for you. Um, so just as we get started, I, wanna, I'm gonna, I do want to take two things that I think are really important that we have to rewire our brain about discipleship and where we have been um, as a church, as Christianities, in, in most of the like parachurch ministries you've been involved in, we, we, we kind of need to rewire what you think when you hear the word discipleship. So can I just say just two things if you want to write them down, they're really easy, but discipleship cannot be reduced to the acquisition of information. We need to tell you that like, it, discipleship is not simply knowing the right answers to the test. Memorizing those answers and regurgitating them in class or in your small group or with Christian friends or with somebody you really respect, right? So we'd always laugh. What's the answer to every Sunday school question? Jesus, more faith. That's it. You can laugh at that. It's actually meant to be funny. Maybe it's not funny. It's just funny. It's old wine. Sorry. That's a, that's a church joke from like 30 years. You're just like, Jesus, more faith. Whatever the question is, Jesus, more faith. It fits, right? So we, we get to the point where a lot of you have grown up in church and you have imbibed an idea that to live for Jesus and to be a good person is to know all the right answers to all the right questions. And it's fascinating because what does that say about God? It says God is a professor who cares about your mind and the answers, and he's going to test you constantly to see. You ever have the professor who does like the trick questions? And you're kind of like, I get it a little bit, but sometimes you're like, I don't know the purpose. Is the purpose for me to know this the right way? Or, you know, it's like God's not that way, but it's not acquisition of information. And the second thing is discipleship cannot be reduced to behavior modification. Discipleship with Jesus is not about getting you to do all the right things all the time, the right way. Discipleship is not about being good. So many people have walked away from the church because they've realized they can't be good. And because they can't be good, there is no room for them in the family of God. And you cannot find that idea in the New Testament. Jesus says, come after me and be good. No, he says, come after me and die to yourself and learn a new way. And it's fascinating because he says, I'm good. And if you will spend enough time with me, you will begin to slowly but surely become like me. 
And that's, that's the key to discipleship. Because this is what I would say. I think so many of us have made so many questions that if the acquisition of information and of checking all the right boxes, doing the right things, if that really made you a good Christian, why are so many knowledgeable Christians so mean? Right? You ever ask that question? It's like, man, that guy is on the elder board at my church. He owns this business. And at church, he smiles. He does all this stuff. And yet I worked for him. And he's one of the meanest suckers you'll ever meet in your entire life. He'll rip your throat out in business and just like stomp on your head. I mean, you're just like that picture. And then Jesus who says, uh, come after me, right? Like, so he's like, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It's like, yoke yourselves to me. My yoke is kind and my burden is light. And you're just going like, okay, so if, this, if, if knowledge actually created, made people like Jesus, why are so many knowledgeable people, they're not like Jesus that much? I, I, like, I find this gap between knowing the right things or knowing about God and actually becoming like the master. And so that's where this thing brought us to, and we, we've had a passion for discipleship, and, it, and it's really, it's been a hard road trying to figure out, how do we do this? What are the ways? Do we do Bible studies? Do we do one-on-one? -on -one? Do we do groups? Do we study a book? Do we, you know, there's all sorts of ways and means when somebody says discipleship, and we've done them all. Can I just say, like, for the, kind of, especially for the pastors here, 25 years of ministry, you name it, I've tried it. I've, I've done all those things. And all of them have really good aspects and all of them have unintended downside risk that it's hard to understand until you get into it and you realize human beings are such a weird creature because um, we naturally and subconsciously identify the incentive structures in things and we begin to do things almost subconsciously to win, to compete, to... Um, distance ourselves to hide and I don't care what it is you've, you every, anything you give me human beings find a way to hide and they find a way to to like you know resist and all these things so came across this book discipleship begins with beholding and, and um, the verse I just want to use here if you want to uh, look it up second Corinthians 318. It describes this. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So discipleship really is about transformation. It's about change. And I think we always ask, how do human beings change? And there's all these theories of change. But the Bible says very clearly here, human beings are transformed when they see clearly who God is. They see God and they're transformed. So discipleship actually begins at its fundamental nature as a human being coming into contact, having an encounter with the almighty living God. Seeing him is the spark of change. Meeting God, because God's alive, right? He is a living being. So the author would say it this way, discipleship begins with the people of God corporately beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Okay, why is this so important? Because discipleship is about transformation. I had a friend who said it this way. He said, information is good, application is better, transformation is best. 
So what, what I would say is we don't settle just for information of God and we don't settle just for the application of the truth to our lives to improve our lives by a percentage quotient. We want transformation. We want to see people's lives change. How are we transformed? The Bible says you're transformed when you have an encounter with God. People see Jesus. Discipleship begins with beholding. So that means it's the first and most important practice of discipleship is to have a practice in your life of seeing God, beholding him. Love this author says, our God revealed through Jesus is the most beautiful and fascinating being in the universe. Why does it transform us? Because it is what our life is created for. And when you see God clearly, it's this aha moment. Like, oh, that's why I exist. I exist because this person that I just met actually made me to meet him. <laughs> he made me for this, that God is complex, interesting, exciting, magnificent, glorious. And, and friends, I would just say like, if, if you spend enough time with Christians and spend enough time in churches, I would say one of the, the most glaring characteristics, which is like a, a, a condemnation of church, is that they're bored. They're bored. Isn't that weird? Like, they're, they're bored with God. They're bored with the church. And can I just say, if you're bored with God, I think that means you haven't met him. And all you have to do is go read Revelation 1 and 2. We sang it. The saints and the elders have been singing one song to God in his presence, these creatures for eternity, and they never get tired of it. They never grow bored. They never get weary. It is, it's, it's beyond our conception, right? And yet, why are so many Christians bored? I think so many Christians are bored because we settle for information and application. And we don't press through to the encounter with the Almighty God. Why don't we press through to encounter? It's because we have to change. <laughs> if you meet God, things don't stay the same and that can be scary, right? Be like, oh man, I don't know what's gonna happen if I have this happen to me. But so if that's the baseline, right? So this is the baseline for our discipleship practice. And that's why we say we're a worshiping community first and we're a disciple making community second. Why? Because the kind of disciples we're making here is based on worship. It's based on Beholding, It's based on revelation. Jesus in John 4 says the father is seeking, anybody know? Worshippers. The father is seeking worshipers. And he says, and he wants them to worship in spirit and truth. So it's not that when you behold his beauty and you get transformed that you throw your intellect away. No, no, no. It's that your intellect actually gets transformed and purified and sharpened toward him. But it's built on this beholding, this revelation. So discipleship begins with beholding. So why, why is that? Why would God wire us this way? Why does it work? And I would just say this, because beholding God produces fascination. People who have met Jesus, and, and, and I'm going to use language like face-to-face, -face, seeing him. And I know some of you might be like, well, I've never actually seen him. But there's this mysterious thing, friends, and I, and I don't know, it's like, it's the language we have. Um, and Lance, Lance would say, uh, what do you say, Lance? He goes, I know in my knower. Did you make that up or did somebody tell you that? 
He didn't make anything up. <laughs> but I love, he's like, you just know it in your knower. I don't know where the knower is in your body. I don't know. It's in there somewhere, but it's like, you know that you've met God, that you've encountered him, that you've felt him, that you've heard him. You just know, right? And it's so hard to explain. And sometimes we don't even talk about it because we're like, it sounds weird. Or I'm gonna sound super spiritual. Or my friends will be like, no way. But it's like, you know it and you, you, you know it when it happens because what it does is it sparks a fascination with you about the person of Jesus, so when I went to Israel for the first time, um, our guide, he had studied at the university, at Jerusalem University, at Hebrew University, and he said, they're all uh, uh, rabbis, they're all, uh, they practice Judaism, and he had one rabbi who said, uh, if, if Jesus is your rabbi, and you don't read the Gospels once a week, you're a liar. <laughs> He's like, dude, I sat in that class, and I was like, I was one of the only Christians, and I was just like shrinking, like in... He goes, because if Jesus is your rabbi, your life should be fascinated with him. You should want to know everything he did, everywhere he went, every word he spoke, every motive of his heart. I mean, you should be obsessed with this man, Jesus. You should be fascinated with him. You should pour over the gospels, trying to find any little, like, nugget of, of wisdom and, and just think about him. I think that's why people love the, the show The Chosen because I think it's stirring fascination about who Jesus was in his real uh, flesh and blood life. How did he laugh? How did he walk? What did he say? How much did he sleep? Where did they go? I mean, it's just like this thing is like, I just want to know more about this man who's changed everything. When you see him, you get fascinated. Think about what happens when a young man falls in love, right? Like, like when you fall in love, you just throw caution to the wind and you're like, whatever it takes. And you make grand statements. This is awesome. And, and isn't it so crazy? You just get fascinated with one person. That's how God wired us is to actually see a person, find an interest in them. And then something someday just sparks and you're like, that's it. It's her. I'm going all out. Whatever it takes, wherever she's at, I'm going to be there. Right? We've talked about this before. You start planning your schedule. What class is she taking? Okay, she's there. And you're like, oh, yeah, I got a class there too. And you're like, you don't have a class over there. You're just like hang out in the room until she shows up. And then you're like, oh, the, you know, what do they call it? The bump into. I'm going to do one of those bump into. I'm going to try to figure out how to get around her. And then what do you do? You, well, now, now you probably do it differently. It used to be you talk on the phone for hours. Like I remember one time my ear was like so red and sore because you're just like on the phone for hours and you're just like, tell me more, right? And this is what I, I would say. You will know that you should marry somebody when you're like, I will spend the rest of my life asking you these questions. Because I know there's more about you I don't yet know, but I want to. I want to know more about your heart, about your history, about your pain, about your joy, about your gifts, about your calling. I, wanna, I just want to know more. And you can tell a bad marriage when the curiosity has run out. It's like, I've heard that, I've done that, we've been there. And friends, human beings reflect their creator in that there's almost no end to like who we are and who we're becoming and how we change and our goal is just to stay curious about each other. And the goal in discipleship, when you behold God, you become fascinated and your curiosity just whoosh, 
goes like this, and you're like, I'll never know it all about Jesus. I'll never get to the end until I just stand there in eternity and stare at him forever in his glory. So beholding, you see someone beautiful, you meet them, you become fascinated by them, and then you voluntarily and joyfully reorient your life around that thing, around being with them as consistently as you can. That's what discipleship is in beholding. And so what I'd say about this, what if we began to measure maturity in the church by your level of fascination with Jesus? Like, like you're only as mature as you are fascinated by the person Jesus. I think that'd be a good thing because people who are fascinated with him are learning about him. There shouldn't be any people who are like graduating from faith who are saying, I've been there, done that. I led the youth group. I did the Sunday school thing. My kids are grown now and I'm going to like check out a church. Like, no, 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 no. In our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we should be marked by growing love and fascination with Jesus. Because guess what? The older you get, the more you know him, the bigger he is. It's just, it never ends. True spiritual maturity is marked by an increasing desire for and habit of beholding the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. Like looking at him with your heart and trying to see. So why do we put so much focus on worship and prayer at Skyline? Because we believe that worship and prayer is the place that you behold the beauty of Jesus. We just believe it is the thing that God has given us as we declare his worthiness back to him, he shows up. And we prayed in the prayer room. Jesus made this amazing statement. He says, guess what? Wherever you get some people together who love me, I will be there. He's like, I don't care where you are or what you're doing or what's happening. Wherever you get some people who love me in a place together, I will be there. And it's one of the most fundamental truths I've found out in this thing is that it never fails. Where people gather in his name to love him, he always shows up. So can I just make a confession to you this morning? I didn't go into ministry to help people. Does that feel weird? I feel weird saying that. Like I just, like I wasn't like, I want to help people. I'm going to be a pastor so I can help people. I'm not that good a person, friends. Like, I just, like, I'm not, like, Annie can testify. I'm not a helper by nature. <laughs> Our, we were young marrieds, and she's like, do you want to take the trash out? And I was like, no. <laughs> and she was like, what? I was like, I don't want to take the trash out. That's what you asked me, and I answered. She was like, well, I want you to take the trash out. And I was like, well, then ask me to take the trash out. And the answer is yes. Will you take the trash out? Yes. Do you want to? No. <laughs> Now I've learned better that it's just like, okay, that, that's not what that means, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and so it's like this thing, it's like, I didn't go into ministry because I wanted to help people. I went into ministry because Jesus so radically changed my life. I wanted him to do that in other people. That's it. I just want to see him do in other people what he did for me. And if I can be some part of that, that's amazing. I wanna, I wanna be like those friends in the story whose friend was sick and they carry him on the stretcher and they climb up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof and they drop, what did they do? Their only job was to get that guy near Jesus. That's it, I just wanna get people near Jesus. Why do we worship and pray so much? Because I just wanna get you close to him. 
If you just get in his presence near him, he, he does everything, and I just get to stand and watch in amazement. It's such a cool thing. Paul meets Jesus on the road, right? And this is fascinating because Paul's the, the most religious man in Israel. Like he's like, you know, study at Gamaliel's feet. I've done all this stuff, circumcised on the eighth grade. He, he gives this like religious CV. He meets Jesus on the road. Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you, do you know what Saul said at that moment? His words are so instructive. His first words when he saw Jesus on the road, he says, who are you? He knew all this stuff about God, and yet he did not know Jesus face to face. He didn't know him to look at him. It would be the saddest thing to live our whole life going to church, acquiring all this information, and yet not knowing Jesus, actually. Or if he showed up in our life, we'd have to say, who are you? I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's like, oh, we want to know him. We want to see him. Man, so... Friends, just transformation. I've got a few other things I'm going to skip, but transformation has to be the goal. This is the thing. I didn't get into ministry, like I said, just to help people improve their lives by 30%. Right? Like, I'm not a Christian life coach. I can help you. I can do some stuff, right? Like, but I want to see you go from darkness to light, from death to life. The Bible says from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Somebody who's radically saved. Jesus didn't give up heaven and come to earth to just help you a little bit. He came to radically transform your life. He wants his life to flow through you, right? So we talked about the fruits of the spirit. He doesn't want you just to work really hard. So, uh, and what's cool about it is like when you make beholding the, the center, when you make his presence the center, we had a friend come to church in the last couple of years and in their first Sunday, I, I met them later, maybe six or seven weeks after they'd been at church for a while. And I met them and I said, hey, what's, what's going on? Tell me about this. Like, well, we showed up here because we knew a few people. And the first Sunday I was here in the middle of church, God spoke to me. And he's like, it's the most surprising thing that's ever happened in my life because I didn't show up to church thinking God would speak to me. I just thought I might get some help. God spoke to me and he told me something so specific. And he said, stop doing that. And I said, so what'd you do? He's like, I stopped doing that. And I was like, well, that's cool. How's it worked? He goes, it has transformed my life. Everyone in my family is like, what are you doing? What happened to you? And he's like, I just tell him, like, I heard God's voice. He told me to do something and I obeyed. And it's so cool that his transformation in this place happened six weeks before I met him, before anybody knew who he was. Such an amazing thing. It's so much better that if I would have sat down and found out he was doing that thing and tried to convince him to stop, it would have never worked. All the human wisdom in the world, all, the, all that stuff, it wouldn't work. And yet one moment with God, his voice, his power, it was like, whew, it's like, okay, that was God. I have to stop. God spoke to me. So this transformation happens. Our goal is get people near Jesus in his presence and let the spirit work and so, friends, when you behold him, what you get is you get revelation. This, this word, and I just encourage you this week, open your Bible and look up every instance where the Bible uses the word reveal, revealed, or revelation. It is all over the Bible, and it's who God is. He is the God who reveals himself to human beings. And so many times what we do is we actually get in the way of God revealing himself to human beings because we're trying to reveal God to human beings. And God's like, just 
Your job's pray, love people, and wait. And the moment I start revealing myself, that's where you actually get to come. It's like, that's God. Like, you're like, you're literally witnessing to, yeah, that's God. That's his voice. He's good. That's what he's doing. Like, but if, if you just get out of the way, it's amazing because life is so much easier when we stop trying to change people. People are like, how's Skyline going? I'm like, it's so easy. It's so easy because I spend zero of my effort anymore trying to externally motivate people to do things. And I trust God to reveal himself to people's hearts and then they become internally motivated and then I get to, I get to like walk alongside them and just kind of like pour gas on the fire and be like, yeah, that's it. You're right. Keep going. Run after him. It says in there, there in Genesis 35, he built an altar called the place El Bethel because God had revealed himself to him. Jacob, God reveals himself to him. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the, the dreams of Pharaoh one, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. Like God's like revealing himself over and over again, Matthew 16, Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God is in the business of revealing himself to human beings. So revelation, friends, is the core of understanding who God is and loving him. Asking God, reveal yourself to me. Who are you? What are you like? I want to know you and God reveals himself to us and what happens in that is love and it's the difference between knowing and knowing. Knowing about God, knowing facts, a bunch of cliches, a bunch of religious language and actually knowing him. I love the movie Goodwill Hunting and, and uh, he's talking about, he's like, if I told you about love, you'd quote me poetry. If I told you about history, you'd quote this. He's like, but you've never stood in the Sistine Chapel and just taking it in. There's a different kind of knowledge available, right? To know God, to see him, to understand him. And so I would say this, like beholding, this life of beholding leads to revelation and revelation actually leads to love. And James says this, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If you start with knowledge, you rarely get to love but you can build knowledge on top of love that is so powerful. Knowledge that actually blesses people and helps them and sharpens them. So revelation creates fascination. Fascination leads to pursuit. Pursuit leads to more revelation. And it is this cycle that for the rest of your life you can live in that is so good. Beholding leads to transformation. It leads to revelation. It leads to and secures us in the love of God. Jesus raises from the dead. And what does he do? He says, uh, tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. He meets them for a meal. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. He asked him again, do you truly love me, Lord? You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. The third time, do you love me? you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why was Jesus so focused on love? Why was he so focused on love? Why not obedience, right? Why not faithfulness, uh, generosity, all these other good things? Why love? And he, I think it is because Jesus knew where Peter was going and he knew that love was the only thing that would keep him on the path to the place where God had ordained for him. 
You don't get crucified upside down in public on principle. Like Peter did. You do that when you love someone so deeply. <laughs> love drove the apostles into the world to suffer and die like Jesus. Love, it's the only thing that will produce the things that we actually know we're meant to do. It's love, and it's not, it's not loving people. It's not loving your neighbor. It's loving him. It's this first command. Jesus, it's really fascinating that Peter, you find Peter in his pain and shame. Jesus shows up. He didn't deliver a message to Peter. He showed up face to face. This is really important this morning for you. If you're like walking right now in grief, in loss, in pain, in shame, in confusion, Jesus wants to show up to you face to face. He knew that the only way Peter could be restored is if he stood in front of him and said, I love you. Do you love me? And I love that Jesus wasn't like, well, if you loved me, you would have stood up for me back there with that little girl. No, he's like, do you love me? Okay, then it's like, really, he's like, if you love me, then keep going. Keep, do, you've been feeding my sheep. Keep going. Feed my sheep. Like, keep going. But this morning, I just want you to know, like, the reason I'm so passionate about this idea of discipleship beginning here is because you have things in your life that no knowledge can touch. You can know all the right things, and it will not hit that place in your life. Only him. He wants to show up in your life face to face. And friends, no one else could restore Peter. It had to be Jesus. Jesus was the only one who could restore him. He's the only one that can restore us. I'm going to invite the band back up. Um, we're soon close. It's really interesting because... Um, This feels, this idea of beholding feels mysterious. And you might think, what does it mean? How do you do that? And it's hard because I, I don't have the clearest explanation other than I know that when I worship Jesus in the truth, when I love him, when I praise him, when I thank him, I know in my knower that he is alive and he meets me. And in that place, I find Peace, rest, security, faith, hope. I know I'm loved. And when I move out of that place, I move out of it in this kind of like shalom that God meant my life to be. And I become free and easy with my wife, with my children, with my coworkers, with my neighbors, with people. And so what I've done in my life and with our staff is we worship and pray every day together. Why? Because I just think it's so important to see him daily in that kind of way to like actually move into the world. If I'm not careful, I forget. <laughs> Paul says, you look in the mirror and you forget what you look like, right? You, you just, it's so easy to forget. And so with us, with our church, we've tried to build this idea into the very fabric of who we are. It's why we worship here Monday at noon. It's why we do Wednesday nights. It's why we have all sorts of other things. And whenever we do anything, we try to worship and pray 
try to make sure it's part of who we are because we know that if we spend time corporately beholding the beauty of God, that we change. We change. And there's something about this generation, friends, that I think is so key. I think the generation before us, I would say that the, the core characteristic of their outreach into the world was go and tell. So many of you grew up in this. Many of your grandparents were like part of like Billy Graham crusade and campus crusade and all this stuff. Why? It's like, go and tell. I think this generation is gonna be come and see. I think it's gonna be come and see a God who's alive in a people. I think it's gonna be like, you gotta come to my church because God's here. He changed my life. You can meet him. And all that stuff that's going on and you can come to rest through him. All of your anxiety, all of your depression, all of your fear, all of your disasters in your life, all the pain, all the grief, all the shame. If you could meet him, it can change. Just come, come and see. So I want to encourage you to make beholding the core practice of your spiritual life, that you would have this prayer on your lips to God, I want to see you. Whatever that means, whether it's see you with my eyes or see you with my heart or feel like I want to know you, don't settle for information in this season of your life. Don't settle just to know about God. Run after revelation. So you can sit down face to face with a friend and say, let me share with you what God is revealing about himself in my life. And it's changing me. Right? It's changing me. He's so good. He's so kind. He's so loving. He's so forgiving. He's so fun. I didn't know he could be fun. So many people are like, I didn't know church could be fun. I didn't know church could be fun. So I want you to stand to your feet. And I want you just to take a moment. Would you just close your eyes? in your heart right now, you being in Peter's shoes and Jesus showing up saying, I'm here to restore you. I had to see you face to face. And just maybe you just whisper in your spirit, Jesus, I want to meet you in. I want to meet you in my grief right now, Jesus. I want you to be real where I'm at right now. No faking, no earning, no performing. I need you to be real in my addiction. I want to meet you here. I want to meet you, Jesus, in my success. Everything's going great in your life. You need to meet him in the middle of that. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to get diverted, Jesus. In the blessings of my life, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want you to reveal who you are to me. So Jesus, we love you. And we want to know you more in 2023. We want you to reveal more of your heart, more of your power, more of your plan for the world. We want to know. We want to know you. We want to know your love. So I thank you for
for this church. I thank you that beholding has become a core practice of this place, God. And I pray if there's any in here who have just say, I've just never had that encounter with God. I've never seen him clearly. God, would you bring revelation to their life? Even right now, would you give them the clearest picture of you that they've ever had? Because your face is beautiful and good and loving and kind. And when we look at you, we remember who we are. So thank you, Jesus. We love you. We just pray in your name.